All right, today we are in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 8. Uh, Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 8. And I'm going to call up Colin Mays to read for us. So if you could please stand for the reading of God's word. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and, it found, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Thank you. You're, dis- you're be seated. Not dismissed yet. You can't leave. <laughs> I know some of you are getting up to go. <clears throat> all right. Well, today the theme of our message is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, We have come to an interesting couple of incidents in the book of Acts. Uh, Not that the stories that we have read up until now have been boring or uninteresting. It's just that the events that happened in Ephesus were really out of the ordinary. They were spiritual events and difficult to explain events and miraculous events. Events. So to bring us up to speed really quick, Paul is on his third missionary journey, a journey where he mainly visited the churches that he had already established, uh, except for Ephesus. Uh, Paul spent three years in Ephesus, planting the church and then establishing it with leadership and stability. And because of its location, the Ephesian church was a very important local church in the history of the early church The city of Ephesus was arguably one of the most important hubs in the Mediterranean. Uh, Last week we learned that Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria, uh, and it had a quarter of a million residents. Ephesus was a cultural, religious, and economic hub for all of Asia Minor and was the trade hub for both land and sea merchants. Uh, Ephesus was a center of trade and commerce. It was like the World Bank headquarters of its time. Uh, It was influential and wealthy. Actually, they stored all of their treasures in the temple to Artemis, and we'll learn about that next week. It was an influential, wealthy city. It was a busy port city, a hub between the power of Rome in the west and the great kingdoms of the east. And to top it off, up on a hill almost in the center of the city, 
<clears throat> was one of the seven wonders of the world. <clears throat> the great shrine of the magnificent temple to Artemis, the KJV calls her Diana, which is the Roman counterpart for the Greek Artemis. And it was a pagan temple for cult worship, superstition, spirituality, and Artemis was known as the goddess of the hunt or of the wilderness. All right? The residents of Ephesus were pagan, they were corrupt, they were idolatrous, they were rich, and they were far from God. Sound anything like today? That's pretty. Our country for many years has been the financial powerhouse, full of influence and wealth. Our nation is full of cult worship, the worship of nature and science and pagan spirituality. So it was much like Ephesus. And this was the idolatrous and corrupt context that Paul found himself in shortly after he arrived from Corinth, which itself, as we learned, was the capital of paganism for the entire Roman Empire. So evil and idolatry and greed and manipulation, deception and cruelty were all around Paul. All right? So we're going to find him in verse 8, preaching the way. And that's your first point in your outline. So in verse 8 of chapter 19, we read that he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So, for three months, Paul was reasoning and persuading, or he was disputing and persuading, or addressing and, and convincing the people there. He was speaking, addressing the crowds, preaching and arguing the case of Christ from scriptures in order to convince or persuade his hearers. And Paul was fearlessly and boldly persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, for those of you who are astute and who have been following all along through the book of Acts, we have seen the high-profile apostles and others, including Stephen and Philip and Apollos and Barnabas, all preach the gospel of the message of Jesus Christ, right? That Jesus is the Messiah who died and was buried and rose again from the dead to offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who believe. So then what is this thing called the kingdom of God, which Paul is fearlessly convincing people? Right? Is this a different message than the gospel of Jesus? It's a really good and really important question. The answer is no. The message of the kingdom and the gospel message of Jesus are one and the same. The message of the arrival of the kingdom of God was heralded by John the Baptist and by Jesus and by all his apostles. A kingdom is comprised of people. If you don't have people, you don't have a kingdom. Right? There's nothing to rule if you don't have people. This is true for the kingdom of God as well. How do people enter or become part of the kingdom of God? Well, by placing their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God's Messiah, the Savior of mankind, the door to the sheepfold, the one whom John the Baptist prepared the way, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Son of God, the heir of David's throne, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how you enter, through belief in that person. Those who place their faith in Jesus are born into God's family. They become the people of God, the ones who comprise God's kingdom. In, first John, or in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
In other words, either you are in the kingdom of God, you are born again into the kingdom of God, or you are not. There are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus' message to Nicodemus was the same message that Paul gave to the Jews in the synagogue of Ephesus. It was the same message that the prophets in the Old Testament gave. It's the same message that we hear today. God is gathering people from the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light. Jesus is the eternal king in God's kingdom. And those who place their faith in King Jesus receive entrance into the kingdom of God. They are placed securely under his benevolent rule. They are forgiven of their sins. They are transformed day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they receive eternal life in heaven with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now those who reject the kingdom of God or the gospel message of Jesus remain in the kingdom of darkness and are condemned to an eternity outside of the kingdom of God under its benevolent and loving ruler, King Jesus. This place, which is apart from God's presence, is a place that is infested with demons and ruled by the prince of darkness. It is a place of torment and suffering, and this place is called hell. It is a place that Jesus actually talked a lot about himself. In Luke chapter 13, verse 47 and following, Jesus said this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers, but threw the bad away. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So those who enter the kingdom of God through belief in Jesus logically then become followers of Jesus. For you cannot truly believe that someone is a king without obeying them and following their lead, right? And those who follow King Jesus take on a new lifestyle, a culture of the kingdom of God. Their actions and attitudes become different. They follow a different way, the way of Jesus. And so in the early church, those who were born again into the kingdom of God through belief in Jesus and subsequently began to follow Jesus and speak of Jesus, these people became known as followers of the way. Followers of the way. Now, there are only two types of people in the world. Those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are not. Those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. And in verse 9 of our text, we see that there are some who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised king who would rule the promised kingdom of God. And these folks who rejected the kingdom of God or who rejected Jesus had two responses, at least in this text. They stubbornly persisted in unbelief. There were those who heard Paul's bold preaching, his persuading arguments, his documented proof from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, and they became stubborn in their unbelief. They refused to believe. You know, I've heard it said that a loving God, if he created a place like hell at all, he, how could he be loving and then just throw people helplessly into this lake of fire as they're kicking and screaming all the way along, right? Scripture does not paint this picture. Scripture paints the picture that people stubbornly don't want to admit that God is right. They stubbornly refuse to believe that Jesus will forgive their sins. They stubbornly refuse to accept the gracious and loving gift of Jesus, their Messiah, their Savior. Because it is not their way, 
They want to be the boss. They want to call the shots. They want to do it their way. Their way clashes with God's way. And just as it did in this story, after Paul gave them proof upon proof, demonstrated love and grace, expounded on the Old Testament scriptures, these folks stubbornly refused to believe. Instead, they went on the offensive. They antagonistically spoke evil of the way. And the word for speak evil is also to revile or to curse. So they cursed the way of Jesus. They reviled and spoke evil of God's way, Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. And this was their choice to curse the way. Now I want to plead with you today. If, if you are still in the kingdom of darkness, still rejecting the way of God, Jesus our Savior, then I plead with you to reconsider. If you continue down the road or your own way, for whatever reason, you may even have a logical reason. You may have a personal reason, a seemingly legitimate reason. It doesn't matter. If you continue down your own way and refuse the way of Jesus, you will spend eternity in the place that Jesus talked about, a place of torment, and that place is called hell. And hell is a place that is a combination of God's making and your own choosing. Because in choosing to reject Jesus, you're choosing to go to the place where he is not. You don't want him, so you're going to go to the place where he is not. Hell is a horrible place, void of Jesus and his love and peace and joy that he can bring to your life. So please trust in Jesus as your Savior and follow him as your King. This type of antagonistic unbelief happened in Corinth. Uh, after Paul and Paul left those people and he went right next door and began to preach the news of Jesus, but it also happened here in Ephesus. These people rejected and they were antagonistic against the message and so Paul left these folks and continued, who continued in disbelief and he went somewhere else to minister to people who would listen. He went to the hall of Tyrannus, it says, another place that was still in the city of Ephesus. And he reasoned with the folks daily, it says. He did this for two years. And all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord the message of Jesus spread everywhere as people heard the message and proclaimed the good news that Jesus' king, God, or kingdom, God's kingdom had come and they could be part of it. Okay? To further the message along and to spur the curiosity of the people, though, God was doing some pretty amazing things in Ephesus. So let's continue and look at this really, really interesting uh, episode in the book of Acts. Verse 11 of chapter 19. <clears throat> And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Let's stop there for a second. So chapter, or the, your second point there is God validated the truth and he did this through some extraordinary miracles, all right? Paul was preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, but he was also preaching in the marketplaces in his tent-making shop. Remember, Paul was a tent maker uh, along with Priscilla and Aquila, his partners in business, partners in ministry, and he spent many hours working with his hands to provide for himself so that he could preach the gospel uh, free of charge to people. But he didn't just work while he was at work. 
He also preached and he taught and he witnessed and he was used by God to perform some miracles in a very unorthodox way. He sent handkerchiefs. These were small towels used to wipe the sweat from one's forehead or one's neck. And he sent those to the sick. Or he borrowed out his apron. Just that. Aprons that covered the front of a craftsman or artisan to protect their clothing while they worked. And those went to the demon-possessed. And it says that the diseases left the people and the evil spirits came out of them. Now Jesus, when he walked on the earth, he did some similar miracles. It was recorded that people simply had to touch the garment of Jesus in order to be healed. But here Paul was sending out handkerchiefs and aprons to places around the city and God was healing and exercising demons without Paul even being present. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I would want to receive a sweated-on handkerchief or a dirty, grimy apron of some tent-making preacher from the ethnic quarter of town. I don't know, are you following me? I don't know if I'd want that. But isn't it interesting that God used the very things that Paul used in his secular job, in his trade, to validate the truth and to be a catalyst for bringing the gospel to people who would never have heard otherwise? When I got back to the States uh, from overseas, I was hired by a church to start an immigration counseling office, a place where immigrants could go to receive immigration assistance at discounted prices. We did things like green card renewal, change of status, fiancé visas, and DACA, and naturalization petitions. And doing immigration paperwork is a lot of hard work, tons of paperwork, actually, lots of forms, hours on the phone, gathering documents, long conversations, government bureaucracy. You can have it up to here with them, right? Every client that came in had to have an initial interview. And I made a policy that in that interview process, we would inform the client of what we do, but also why we do it. We would say things like this. We are here to help you and to care for you, come alongside you and assist you so that you can legally stay and become part of our country. And we do this because Jesus did something similar for us. Jesus died to save us and help us and care for us and come alongside of us so that we could be part of his kingdom, a kingdom of love and grace. And we would always offer to pray for them. Out of hundreds of clients that we had, I think we only had one person refuse prayer. And we would present the gospel in our prayer. We would also offer to pray for their application before we sent it off to the government. And during the four years that I oversaw that ministry, we only saw one denial. That's a miracle if you've ever dealt with immigration, right? The point is this. The tools of the trade opened up doors for us to share the gospel of Jesus with people who would never have heard otherwise. And people from all over the world who had come to our hometown of Waukesha came to know the Lord as their Savior and enter God's kingdom. And this is what Paul was doing. I want you to think about where God has put you and the work that he has given you to do with your hands. He may not heal people physically through you like he did with Paul, but I want you to consider some things. Perhaps you're a nurse or a doctor. You work in the medical field. And God has given you a few moments one-on-one with individuals throughout the day as you use your blood pressure cuff or whatever it is to listen to their physical heart and to deal with their physical needs. Perhaps you could ask God for opportunities to say a quick prayer out loud for a particularly stressed individual or that he gives you opportunity to casually mention the hope and the joy that you have because Jesus has saved you. 
Or perhaps you're an advisor or consultant. God has given you extended periods of time with clients as you page your document after document needing to be signed, right? Perhaps you could ask God for opportunity to say a quick prayer about the decisions that are being made or mention the peace that you have knowing that Jesus provides for all of your needs. Perhaps you're a carpenter. God has given you tools that you use daily for remodeling and building homes for people. I would suggest that you don't leave your dirty yellow work shirt behind like Paul did, uh, but, I, but perhaps you could say a prayer before or after working on the project. Or you could let the customer know that you will do a professional job to the best of your ability because you do all that you do for your Savior Jesus. You see, Paul used every opportunity and every angle and every situation that he could for the sake of getting the gospel message to as many people as he could. Paul used his trade as a platform for ministering to the physical and spiritual needs of his customers and clients. And perhaps we need to recalibrate our thinking about our employment a little bit. God gave us our position and uh, in our employment not only so that we could work with our hands in order to provide for ourselves and for our family and so that we're not dependent on anyone as we learned last week, but also so that we could use our position as a platform for spreading the gospel to people who otherwise would not hear. Spreading the gospel, witnessing about Jesus' life-transforming power in our own lives, talking up God to a lost and dying world, preparing or praying for people in their life situations is not just for clergy or religious professionals. This is for everyone to be doing. Tradesmen, healthcare workers, salesmen, cooks and bakers, factory workers, burger flippers, managers, deliverymen, teachers and attorneys. And what's so cool is that as we do this, these simple acts of kindness and prayer and love, simply share Jesus with others, Jesus promised something that is actually difficult to comprehend. Jesus' words were coming true through the Apostle Paul, and they can come true through you as well. I want you to listen to what the Apostle John recorded Jesus as saying. In John chapter 14, verse 12 to 14, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now, if that's not enough, listen to what he says after that. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father... Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus promised that we will do greater works than he did? Like, wow. Why was God healing people in this extraordinary and unorthodox way in Ephesus? Was it because Paul was so great? No, he's just a tradesman like all of us. God the Father did this to validate the truth concerning Jesus and to bring glory and attention to himself and to Jesus. Our Father does great works through his people so that he and the Son will be glorified. And get this, God and Jesus are most glorified when people believe in Jesus and receive salvation. Amen? God and Jesus are most glorified when people believe in Jesus and receive salvation and forgiveness of sins. And in Paul's day, these miracles were meant to sort of shock and awe the people so that unbelievers would be drawn to learn more about God who had this incredible power from this humble, hardworking preacher of a Savior who had risen from the dead. In our day and age, offering up a prayer for someone or talking about Jesus as if he's real because he is, is sort of a shock and awe approach to people around us. People are used to being judged for what they do. 
They're used to being, having the gospel forced down their throats by a door-to-door salesman while they're trying to wind down for the night. Or they're used to crazy street preachers standing up on soapboxes and trying to scare them with talk of fire and brimstone falling from the sky. But they're not used to or they're not expecting someone to genuinely care about them and love them in their situation. Someone who's not paid to care for them. Someone who's not just there to rack up converts on their number chart. They do not have a category for people who love others because they have the love of Jesus burning inside of them. Most people think that Christianity is a religion, not a relationship with the God of the universe. And we have the privilege of introducing a whole new way to them, the way of Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And we get to introduce them to the kingdom of God ruled by an incredibly generous and loving king. Someone who forgives us of our sins, just like Paul was able to do. And that brings us to our third point. The word of God brought life. Let's continue reading, starting in verse 14. So seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. They were, they were uh, casting out, trying to cast out these demons, right? But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the word of God brought life through kind of some interesting circumstances. It's a a great story. Remember, Ephesus is a city known for cultic activity. Worship of Artemis is prevalent. Sorcery and, and potions and witchcraft are widespread. So much so that a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now that's a really interesting combination of of, uh, practices right there, right? We're doing their thing in Ephesus. Think that traveling Jewish people who cast out demons from Gentiles. This was not a normal Jewish practice. This was a money-making scheme, a popularity endeavor, and they were sons of a high priest. So they should have known better that you cannot use God's name any way that you want to. And these exorcists saw what was being done in Jesus' name through the actions of Paul, and they thought that the power to exorcise demons successfully came through using Jesus' name with a correct incantation, and they wanted in. And so they listened, and then they said, I charge you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They didn't even pretend to know who Jesus was, right? By that Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And they simply thought that they could use the name of the Lord Jesus for their personal gain. And this is the very definition of using the name of the Lord in vain. You know the the commandment, right? This is what was meant when God said, do not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, don't use God's name to accomplish your will. 
Don't flippantly use God's name so that you can gain credibility or so you can be financially successful. Don't pretend to think you can call on God's name like you'd call on a genie in a lamp. It doesn't work that way. You have to know him. We, came to know, we come to know him by calling upon his name for salvation. His name is not used for our own personal power and prestige. God is to receive the glory, not us. While the demons uh, have a great answer to these posers, these imposters trying to use Jesus' name for their own profit, and the demon says, well, Jesus I know, that name is well known, and Paul I recognize, but who in the world are you? You are a fraud. And the evil spirit through the possessed man leaps on the seven exorcists and basically gives them a pounding. You know, one against seven, like in the movies, like Chuck Norris, Jackie Chan, right? It's like one on seven, impossible for that guy to do it. But this is for real, right? This guy beat these guys up and sent them out of the house naked and wounded. How humiliating would that have been? Seven men left the house hobbling, limping, nursing a broken arm or busted nose, black and blue eyes, ears boxed in, ribs broken, who knows. But that wasn't bad enough. He also stole their clothes and left them naked. And they had to limp down the street in humiliation until someone assisted them. Here's the deal. <clears throat> Jesus is not going to let someone manipulate his name or take advantage of his power. Why? Because Jesus is concerned with saving souls who repent from their old beliefs and turn to him in faith. I want you to look at what happened as a result of what this demon did. Okay, this is an interesting story. This demon did something crazy, right? And look at what happened as a result of what the demon did. Fear fell upon all the residents of Ephesus because of what happened. Saved or unsaved, all the people were in awe, not of the demon, but of Jesus. Get that. What the demon did brought glory to God. God turns what is evil and makes it into good. The name of the Lord was extolled and magnified and praised. Jesus can take care of himself. And he can protect his reputation and his name. And as, as the name of Jesus is exalted, the wonder of his love is proclaimed. The blessing of his grace is received in gratitude and the mercy of his salvation is magnified. In Ephesus, the word of God increased through these uh, interesting and unorthodox circumstances. And the word of God increased also through the confessing of hidden sins. Verse 18 and 19. Now I've spoken of this before, but I think that we need to constantly be reminded of this truth. Jesus saves us so that he can change us, make us different than we were. This change doesn't happen all at once. It's a lifetime journey of growing more and more into the image of Jesus. But the Spirit of God changes us, produces the fruit of the Spirit in us so that we exhibit the ethos of the kingdom of God in our hearts, actions, and attitudes. And he changes us so that when we present the gospel of Jesus to a lost and dying world stuck in darkness, they see the change in us and it shines like a light that they can see. And then they can turn to that light in order to hear the gospel message of Jesus, the one who shines through us. And I want you to look at what happened to the believers in Ephesus because of this demon routing seven unsaved exorcists. This demon saying that he knew Jesus, but not these worldly men. The believers had a revival. They tr <clears throat> the believers had trusted in Jesus, 
but still retained some of their wrong beliefs, their practices of their old lifestyle. They held on to the sorcery and witchcraft and pagan practices as a sort of insurance policy just in case Jesus didn't pan out, right? But after seeing this episode, they repented of those things and turned wholeheartedly to follow Jesus. It says that they came confessing and divulging their practices. They were making their sinful deeds known to one another. They were confessing that they had syncretized their old belief with belief in Jesus. The demon statement, Jesus I know, but who are you, caused something deep inside the Ephesian believers to stir. And as a result, the ones who practiced magic and sorcery brought their books and they burned them in a place where everyone could see it. They burned it in a public place, kind of like the town square. And their faith in Jesus resulted in a change of lifestyle. It was incompatible and inconsistent and illogical for them to say that they believed in the power of Jesus to save them, the grace of Jesus to forgive them, the love of Jesus to provide for them, and then at the same time practice magic and sorcery and say incantations in order to bring about prosperity, forgiveness, and freedom from guilt. It was incompatible. And the demons had to succumb to the power of Jesus. And so why would these believers hold on to demon worship and sorcery? It had been proven powerless. And so they repented of those ways, of their tacking Jesus onto their old lifestyle as a sort of insurance policy. And they, in a sense, renewed their faith in Jesus and it was revived. The outward action resulting from this revival of heart, this renewed heart, this commitment to believing exclusively and in following only Jesus was the burning of the fetishes and the books, the reminders of the gods that they had served and the tools of their old lifestyle. They purged temptation out of their lives. Now there may be some in this room today who have dealt with the occult or witches' brews or sorcery or magic in the past. And for those who have, this story speaks directly to those faulty beliefs and that powerless lifestyle. Jesus is the only means of salvation. He is the true source of power, and he is to be followed exclusively. We cannot tack uh, Jesus onto demon worship, sorcery, and witchcraft. He alone is to be trusted, and he alone is to be worshipped, and he alone is to be depended upon. If you retain some of those reminders or temptations, I would suggest getting rid of them. And we'll see the importance and the significance of why the Ephesians burned those fetishes and those books next week. So come back to hear that. But for most of us in this crowd, we don't dabble or didn't dabble in the occultic practices. So what can we learn from this story? There are things in culture that we worship or that we hang on to as a sort of insurance policy just in case Jesus doesn't work out. Consider some of the things that tempt us away from an undivided love to Jesus in our time. Things like sports. How much time and focus and energy do sports consume in our lives or in the lives of our children? Do we idolize certain sports players? Are we consumed with games and fantasy games? What about our health? Perhaps this is our top priority for us and it consumes us. How much do we spend on being healthy? How much time and money do we consume with this priority? Could be science. It's become a blatant religion in the past few years. Those who worship science have creeds like 
I trust in science. Science will save me. They have doctrines, new definitions of love and justice, truth and acceptance. They have fetishes and trinkets and necklaces and bracelets and with slogans and phrases on them. They have priests and priestesses who tell folks how to live lives according to best scientific practices. Is it stuff? Do we work and slave just to get the next best thing? Do we have to have the latest and the greatest? What has consumed our time and our attention? To what do we turn for protection and safety and fulfillment? Do we trust in man-made things to keep us safe? Do we trust in man-made things for protection? Do we look to things for fulfillment? What rituals or websites do we follow? What movies or books or fetishes do we have that are ungodly temptations that take our focus off of Jesus? Where do we spend money to ensure that we have prosperity and protection and power? The Bible talks of wisely investing our money for the future. So there's wise investment of our money. But do we find ourselves investing our money in such a way that we feel secure in the particular financial institution or the amount that we have saved, or the diversity of our holdings, or the amount of stuff in our storage container instead of finding our security in Jesus. You see, we syncretize our faith in Jesus with our old ways all the time. We hold on to worldly things from our past as our insurance in case Jesus doesn't work out. It's just that our old worldly ways are more sophisticated than they were in Paul's day. Our new idols are modernized, but they are still idols. If we depend upon something other than Jesus, if we turn to cultural practices for guidance and provision and protection, then we are just like the Ephesian believers were before they brought that stuff to be burned. I want you to listen to what Jesus himself said to the church in Ephesus from Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. So these are Jesus' own words to the church in Ephesus. He said, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus had a lot of good things to say about this Ephesus church, right? But this I have against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We can so often hang on to all kinds of things from our past and from our culture, just like the Ephesian believers did. Clinging to our old ways and old crutches and objects of worship, old things which we trusted for protection and guidance and provision. Unfortunately, the old things are temptations that Satan uses to lure us away from undivided love to Jesus. When Jesus said to the Ephesian church, do the works you did at first, he was referring to their heart of 100% devotion to Jesus where they burned the things that represented their old idolatry and sorcery, these things which they worshipped and clung to for protection and guidance and provision. And Jesus was saying, you left all of that for me. You burned it. But you have since abandoned the love you had for me at first, and you drifted back to those things. Come back to me, Jesus said. Perhaps Jesus is saying this to us today here in North Prairie, Wisconsin. The distractions and challenges and temptations of today are not so very different than they were back in Ephesus. 
Our national culture with its idolatry and prosperity is not much different than Ephesus. And the question is, will we turn wholeheartedly to Jesus? The truth is, Jesus wants our undivided attention, love, and worship. He wants us all in with him. No plan B. And we say the following phrase all the time, but the familiarity can actually cause contempt. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. The longer we follow Jesus, the deeper the meaning of this becomes. Jesus is the way, the only way of salvation. Yes, absolutely. But also the only way to follow. The only way which brings peace and joy and contentment in this life and the life to come. Jesus alone guides. Jesus is the truth. The truth concerning who God is and what his character is like. Yes, absolutely. But also the only truth concerning the times that we are in and what God's will is for our lives. Jesus alone protects us. And Jesus is the life. He's the resurrection life for us. Yes, absolutely. But also he alone gives us the very breath that we breathe, the strength for each day and the purpose for living. Jesus alone provides for us. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example that the Ephesian believers gave to us of being wholeheartedly devoted to you. Pray that each one in this room would be that way, wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. And you led me to a Puritan prayer this morning, God, and I I've adapted it for us, so please hear our prayer. We're intensely aware of the sin that lurks inside of each of us. When you would guide us, we seek to control. When you would be sovereign, we attempt to rule. When you would take care of us, we try to be sufficient in ourselves. When we should depend on your providing, we supply for ourselves. When we should submit to your providence, we follow our own will. When we should love, honor, and trust you, we serve ourselves. Instead of looking to you, we look to man's help. Father, forgive us. It's our chief desire to bring our hearts back to you. Convince us that we cannot be our own gods. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot do anything apart from you. Take us to the cross where Jesus died to demonstrate and lead us in the way. The way, the truth, and the life who is Jesus. We love you and we want nothing more than you. We pray this in Jesus' loving name. Amen. All right, take a deep breath. Why don't you stand? We're going to have our benediction. I encourage you to uh, visit with one another. There's coffee out there. And uh, fellowship, greet someone that you don't know or haven't seen before and welcome them here. And now receive this benediction from 2 Peter chapter 3. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful week.